Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, September 17th, we are studying Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 1 to 17. The Lord gives Ezekiel an action prophecy. The prophet builds a model of the siege of Jerusalem as a preaching of the dreadful judgment that God is bringing upon his people. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Steve Andrews. Pastor Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thanks for having me back. It's a pleasure. As we get started this morning, Pastor Andrews, let's talk a little bit of context. We've come through the first three chapters of Ezekiel, his opening vision, his call into the prophetic ministry. What do we need to recall from there? Any historical context and anything else in the prophet's ministry that'll help us with the words we've got today from chapter four? Well, just as a brief summary of the last three days here, we've had the the priest, Ezekiel, which is his original position as a priest of the Lord serving at his temple, uh, he was one of the first exiles as the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar has already been working against Judah and Jerusalem, and he's taken the first wave off back to Babylon. We're roughly around 593 BC here, and it's while there, it's while in exile that God is going to give that opening vision of chapters one through three to Ezekiel. And in those visions calls him, I don't think we actually see an anointing, but calls him to be his prophet, uh, that he would declare his words to God's people. And the latter part of chapter three began a second vision that spills over into our text that we've got together today here in chapter four, as Ezekiel now gets to turn his life into a sermon illustration, if we want to put it that way. Well, I mean, we've seen Ezekiel do this several times, and we see other prophets do this as well. We might call them action prophecies. That's what I've tended to call them. I know there's other other names that others have assigned. That's often what I've called them. This isn't something that's unique to Ezekiel either in his ministry as a whole or even to him as a prophet, just in terms of, of action prophecies, what are some of the ones we see in other prophets? How does the Lord make use of them? What's the purpose of these action prophecies like we see from Ezekiel today? The Lord works through these things to teach. So you've got Isaiah having to wander around naked for a, a stretch of time. You've got Hosea, who is told to go and marry a prostitute and have children by her, and then she keeps running away from him, and he has to bring her back to himself, gets to the point where it's so bad he has to buy her back for himself um, because she's gotten herself into a slave situation. You've got that tree or like plant or whatever it was in Jonah 4 that God raises up for Jonah and then sends a worm or a caterpillar of some sort that eats it overnight. Uh, Jeremiah that has to wear... Uh, filthy underwear on his head, just these random things it would seem to us sometimes, but the Lord always works through these to teach. Hosea's family, for example, we're Gomer. We're that 
wife, you know, God's people have abandoned him. They keep running away from him, even though he has loved them and cared for them and provided for them. And he continues to go back time and time again for them, even to the point of having to buy them back with his own most precious blood through his son, Jesus Christ. So action prophecy, that's a that's a term I'm not familiar with, but sounds pretty good. I picked it up from Horace Hummel, Dr. Horace Hummel and his commentary. He's the one that, that suggested it as something helpful. And I, I find it helpful. He, he also brings out that there's maybe a, a bit of a relationship. You might consider them a sacramental prophecy. I'm not sure if he uses precisely that term, but he often relates the, these action prophecies to the sacraments where, where God in, in the church today takes his word and he joins it to a visible element in order to deliver you know, his grace, his forgiveness to us in the sacraments. Now, the action prophecies are not always ones of grace in, in the Old Testament. In fact, the one we're going to see today is not one of grace. It is one of law. But perhaps a, a bit of a, a foreshadowing, you might think about how the Lord, in giving his word to his people— often, you know, obviously uses our ears so that we hear, but he makes use of our other senses as well to communicate his word to us, whether it is a word of, of judgment or a word of gospel. That's what we're getting in this, this action prophecy. As you said previously in, in chapter three, there's perhaps some carryover to what Ezekiel's already been given to do, particularly with the binding. And I, I, I made the I don't know, a little bit of a quip perhaps previously, Ezekiel's got himself a house church. He's He's been limited to his house. That's where his ministry is primarily going to take place. And that's where we're going to see him giving this action prophecy in today's text. Any more introductory material before we jump right in and see this rather strange thing that Ezekiel's going to do today? I guess that house idea that you were just picking up on, I mean, we often think of exile for the the Israelites, the people of God, and I guess maybe we're not sure what that looks like. Um, so Jeremiah 29, just for our listeners, if they want to have that in context, go go take a listen to Jer- a read of Jeremiah 29 and see how the Lord actually instructs his people as they're going into exile through the prophet Jeremiah to Babylon, that they should go ahead and build homes and settle there. Um, get married, have children, because the Lord is going to be with them. He's going to bless them in that place, and he will eventually, 70 years later, restore them from that. So Ezekiel is already showing us that very thing, as he has built a home for himself, or I guess he might have acquired it, but he's he's got a home and a, a house church, as you mentioned. Right. Yeah. So so he's here in the house. Again, that is a reminder that the people are there and they are going to be there a while, as Jeremiah reminds us. So it's in his home that Ezekiel is going to be given this action prophecy. So we read a little bit here in Ezekiel 4. And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it and build a siege wall against it and cast up a mound against it. Set camps also against it, and plant battering rams against it all around. And you take an iron griddle, and place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and set your face toward it, and let it be in a state of siege, and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. Then lie on your left side, and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment." For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of the years of their punishment. 
so long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign you, a day for each year. And you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem, with your arm bared, and you shall prophesy against the city. And behold, I will place cords upon you, so that you cannot turn from one side to the other, till you have completed the days of your siege. We'll pause there. That takes us through verse 8 of the text. There's a lot to, to consider. And I will admit, Pastor Andrews, this is another place where as I read through Ezekiel, again, what he's what he's given to do is a bit strange, although it's not not as strange, but sometimes it's hard for me to picture this in my mind. So, And sometimes I think there's maybe a little bit, bit of ambiguity as to precisely what it looks like. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we can we can resolve some of that together today as we try to get a, a feel for what is happening here. So just give us the the first couple of verses, Pastor Andrews. What What is this that Ezekiel is given to do? Well, you're right. We're certainly not going to resolve all of it, but <laughs> let's take a look. Man. So, uh, this is, I don't know, maybe the best word diorama or something, but Ezekiel is actually going to build Almost like, you know, your children would build something with Legos. They might, right. you know, if you've got boys, build a battle scene or something like that. That's essentially what Ezekiel's doing. Um, but pre-Legos, he takes a real brick, uh, <laughs> I'm guessing of a, a decent size, and he's going to stick this right there in the center of his house, uh, and he's going to engrave. So he's going to carve the city of Jerusalem into it. Now, being a priest means that he has spent a good chunk of his time in the city of Jerusalem. So he'd know the layout of Jerusalem pretty well to be able to actually make that uh, engravement. But how good he is at carving might be anybody's guess. So how well that design turns out, we don't know. But then after carving that stone, that brick, he actually would begin probably with you know wood, sticks, stuff like that, to make these other materials uh, to finish out this picture. And it gets into the idea of siege. Uh, siege warfare is one that has, has been historically common. Uh, it's been known for some time. Jerusalem is going to fall under siege. That's going to come with Nebuchadnezzar in probably 589 and last until they fall in 587. You can, you know, our, our listeners can read about that in 2 Kings 25, the actual event, um, whereas this is just the prophecy of it. And on the one hand, with siege warfare, the, the idea of it is alive and well in our minds today, thanks to, I guess you'd say Hollywood. You know, I've got several movies on my shelf back at home, like The Lord of the Rings or The Kingdom of Heaven, which is set in the Crusades, that do a, a, a decent job of showing siege works. You know, you think of the ladders and the towers and the battering rams and, and all the things that they, they gather together as they try and storm the city. The problem with that is that in siege warfare, you don't really actually storm the city. Siege warfare relies on time. Time ends up being the crucial element of it all as you seek to essentially starve the people. Um, so you're going to bring enough troops with you that you can surround the entire city. So this is what Nebuchadnezzar is planning to do to, to Jerusalem. He's going to surround Jerusalem all the way around it with his army. The, the people living in the actual city itself have very limited food supplies. And their, their primary food source is going to be the farmers who farm the land outside the city wall. 
well, that food supply gets cut off. And so after some time goes by, all of a sudden the people in the city no longer have any food. They can't trade with people outside. Nothing's coming in. So the goal of siege warfare actually ends up being almost just getting your enemy to surrender without ever having an actual battle, which again, not what you see in the movies, um, but uh, you know, I don't know, two year movie for the Lord of the Rings. It's long <laughs> enough as it is. I don't know if That's a right. two year version would work. <laughs> so, um, but you know, this is a, a neat little opening uh, to the text. As you think of a family devotion or something like that, you could actually do something like this uh, with your kids at home. You could build this or design it somehow um, so that you could teach what's going on here. The iron griddle, as you turn over to verse three, um, I think there's a little more question about what that iron griddle is supposed to be from, from the way I'm looking at it. It seems like Ezekiel is, is setting up a barrier, right? It's placed as an iron wall between you and the city. So a barrier that illustrates that what's about to happen to God's people in Jerusalem is not going to happen to Ezekiel where he is, that he's removed from this judgment. Um, which could be just the prophet, which would tie into yesterday's, you know, chapter three, uh, that section on how if he warns the, the sinner of his ways, then, then God will not hold that against Ezekiel as well. But it could actually be a reference to all those already exiled, that their experience of this is going to be significantly different um, mm. from that of those who are actually there at mm. the time couple of thoughts there, Pastor Andrews, on the, in terms of the siege warfare, you're right. We, we may have a picture of it from Hollywood to a degree, but it is missing that time element usually. And, and I think usually it, it does emphasize more of the battle, which would have come if there was a battle, it would have come at the bitter end when the people are pretty well ready to surrender anyways. And, and we've gotten a taste for that here on Sharper Iron recently, just by reading through the book of Lamentations, where you hear some of the horrors that the people went through during the siege of Jerusalem that Nebuchadnezzar did enact literally. Ezekiel here is building this model of it. And yeah, that, that iron griddle, that one's a little bit more difficult to understand why it's there. And the text doesn't tell us why. It's just meant as this iron wall between you and the city. I wonder if if perhaps that maybe not saying something about Ezekiel and the exile's experience, but rather maybe as a, a symbol of that the Lord, there's a dividing wall between the Lord and Jerusalem, that that he's not going to protect it anymore. Uh, thinking again of that letter that Jeremiah sent in, in Jeremiah 29, how the Lord you know, tells the people in exile, the hope of the future, it's with you there in exile. It's not with Jerusalem. So, right, what what exactly that means, it's, it's kind of hard to tell. But Ezekiel's got this model, this diorama. I think that's a I think that's a good term for it. And and now this is going to be, he says in verse three, a sign for the house of Israel. And and one of the things we can probably talk about here, because we see the name Israel, we also see the name Judah later. Biblically, we often think of Israel being the northern kingdom and Judah the southern kingdom. Ezekiel is in the midst of exiles from the southern kingdom, Judah. When when the prophet talks about the house of Israel here and then the house of Judah, are we to think of the two kingdoms or is he simply using them interchangeably? What do you think? I think we're seeing both. Um, 
to be quite honest. I mean, we've got, so you do have the interchangeable idea in the Old Testament. There are times where we will simply see Judah also called Israel. And the reason for that, I think, is just simply that Judah is a son of Israel. As you think of Jacob being renamed into Israel in the book of Genesis, and Judah is one of his sons. And it ends up being Judah's offspring, the tribe of Judah, that will remain loyal to the king when the kingdom is divided uh, into the two, the northern and the southern. So Israel, the northern kingdom, is only ever Israel. But Judah, the southern kingdom, is Judah, or it can also be called Israel because Israel is God's chosen holy people, and they're still a part of that. So what we see coming up in the next few verses, though, I think there is a distinction, perhaps, in this idea of punishment of the separate houses, the house of Israel, the 390 days, where the house of Judah has the, the punishment of 40 days. Mm. Okay, so I, and that's where it really does start to you, you wonder if there is and it, it may be because of the difference in punishment. And so we here we come to where Ezekiel is now personally involved uh, a bit more than he was in building the model. It's one thing to to build a model of Jerusalem and to put up this iron griddle and have these, you know, miniature ladders and, and such things. I, I'm trying to picture this in my mind. <laughs> but but now Ezekiel's going to be doing more than just building. He's actually going to become a part of this diorama himself. And and it starts with him lying on his left side. What's and and then the number of days are going to be specified. This 390 on one 40 on the other. There's a lot to talk about here, Pastor Andrew. So let's talk the, the lying on the left side to begin with. What's what's going on here? That's a great question. And I'm not sure if we know the answer to it. I don't know if we see him lie on the left side for Israel and then the right side for Judah. I, I don't know. Um, there seems to be maybe more to it that he turns over um, perhaps than there is that he's on his left side. Although when he lies on his right side later in the text, we see specifically mentioned that he's facing Jerusalem for Judah. So here then, as we're talking about Israel and he's lying on his left side, that would mean that he is, I would assume, uh, facing away from that little diorama, um, which would could be a picture of God having turned against Israel as Israel has turned against him. But that's, I think that's a lot of speculation on my part. Well, it, it's, it's, again, it's kind of hard because there's some key details that aren't mentioned specifically. So for example, like which way is he facing when he lies on his left side? You know, in verse three, he is to set his face toward it, toward the city. Is that true of when he's lying on his left side as well? Maybe. One suggestion I read said, you know, he could have face the city both times if he had switched which side he was on. You know, if he, on the one hand, he lies down on one side of the city and faces it with his left and then switches sides. So that, that's kind of hard to know for sure. Right. One thing that I, I do think is, is important in verse four, and this really continues throughout these, these verses of the lying on which side, is the idea that, that Ezekiel, the, the punishment or the iniquity of the house of Israel is placed upon, upon him. It, and almost in a, in a way that would remind us of how ultimately to point forward to Christ. It seems that, I mean, unless I, I'm, I don't, I don't think I'm missing something, but you can, you can correct me if I am. It seems that Ezekiel's almost functioning as a type of Christ here in, in bearing the punishment, the iniquity of the people. That's 
part of what it sounds like is going on here. That's a neat foreshadowing that at the very least, our English language in the text is letting us pick up on. Uh, so it's great to bring that up. Um, the sins of Israel, are they actually upon Ezekiel at this point? Well, not per se, but he's going to suffer with them or suffer, mm. well, probably with. I don't know that he's suffering for uh, them, but he's suffering with them because of what we're about to see him have to do, right? Right. Um, and the same goes then with Judah later. He's going to suffer with them as well for the sins that they have committed as they have rejected the Lord. I like that you're already bringing up and hinting at the idea of, of what's coming here with these these days, these years. Is it punishment or is it iniquity? You use both of those words and, and the Hebrew word uh, that we see here in verse four, you shall bear their punishment. It can be either one. I think normal usage of it probably is sin or iniquity when we translate it, uh, which th- gives you a very different picture of the, the 390 days than if it's punishment. Those are, mm. in my mind, two very distinct things. Hmm. Right. I, and I think having that that picture, you know, that, that maybe both things are involved, I think is important. When it comes to Ezekiel's suffering, maybe the way that I, I don't think we should say, as you said, that he's suffering for the people, that to suffer for someone, I mean, that's going to be Christ. But maybe foreshadowing. That's right. That would be the foreshadowing there. But maybe to suffer, as you, I think, said, with or he suffers as a representative of, you know, this mm-hmm. idea of action prophecy, that that Ezekiel in his suffering is a representative of the suffering that Israel and Judah have both undergone. So maybe that's the way, you know, as a representative of or with the people, that's his suffering. Let's let's try to tackle the number of days here, Pastor Andrews. And, and I know this, this is kind of an interesting conversation. On the one hand, you've got 390 days on the left side. That's the, the punishment or the iniquity for Israel. The right side is 40 days for Judah. What do, what do we make of these numbers? Well, lots of people have made lots of different things out of these numbers in the years past, uh, which has led, as you mentioned, Horace Hummel's commentary in the show already today. It led him to kind of, although he throws a bunch of things out there to consider in several pages of his book, he ends up saying, maybe we don't know and that's okay. Uh, kind of a, a humility approach to it, which is good. Uh, so each of these days, what we do know, each of the 390 days represents a year. So 390 years of Israel's, again, here's where it matters if we're saying iniquity or punishment, is this 390 years of the Israelites living in their sinfulness against God? Or is this a period of 390 years in which God is punishing them for their previous iniquity and ongoing iniquity at that point as well. It's hard to pair that 390 number with the northern kingdom of Israel or even the the joint kingdom prior to that separation. You know, you've got the 390 and the 40, that's 430 together. There actually is a 430 in the Old Testament. The book of Exodus chapter 12 reveals that the Israelites dwelled in the land of Egypt for 430 years. I don't know that that is a reference that makes sense for us here. Um, you know, the, the gap between Israel becoming a nation and anointing their first king doesn't quite get to 390. It's 358 years. Um, the time between when Saul is anointed king and they finally fall in 722, that's 
also short. It's 324 years. The interesting one that actually would come out to 390 years, and I'm not sure what to make of it, um, this would have to be the idea of punishment and Israel being in exile, is that from the time they fall to Assyria in 722, up until the year 390 years later would be 332 BC, that's the time that Alexander and the Macedonians would have taken over that region. Um, so as you think of Assyria is defeated by Babylon, Babylon defeated by Persia, and it's going to be Persia falling to Alexander the Great. That's a, at least the number hits something there. So I'm not sure if that's it or not. That would be the idea that maybe the exiled Israelites are finally assimilated simply into a new culture. They never repent. They never return, which is something prophesied about them prior to this long ago by other prophets. Hmm. Uh, the the 390 is the number I think that's the that throws the biggest wrench into things. 40, we know that number from a lot of places in the Bible. The 390 is one that it's really hard to make sense of when you think of other key numbers in the Bible. They just don't work with 390. Even when you start thinking about, you know, what does it multiply? What are the factors of it? Things like that it just doesn't work. And that's where, you know, having taken a look at, at some of Dr. Hummel's work, I think that you mentioned it, the 430, when you add the numbers together and, and the thought of the time in Egypt, when you put those numbers together here and you think of the time of exile as, you know, thinking back and comparing it to like Jeremiah talks about the new exodus, the return from exile is the new exodus. And so if you think about the time of exile being comparable to the time of slavery, perhaps the numbers are are not meant to communicate specific a specific timeline of that many years but rather to communicate that more overarching picture of okay the people of god are in this exile as slaves again it's like they've been returned to egypt which would fit well with some of the the promises of judgment that were made in the book of Deuteronomy for the people of Israel, should they fail to keep the covenant? And so, I, I, yeah, I, I kind of wonder, it's, it's one of those places where I think you're right, and along with Dr. Hummel, to be nice and humble here and, and recognize that perhaps there's some information that we don't have that, that we're not precise about. But I think in general, we can get that picture of this is the people of Israel in their rebellion. That's why they're suffering as they are. And, and we can talk more about that and more from Ezekiel 4 on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Ezekiel 4 with Pastor Steve Andrews. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, September 17th. We're studying Ezekiel 4, verses 1 to 17 with Pastor Steve Andrews of St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lees, Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, prior to the break, we were talking about these numbers, the 390 days that represent 390 years and the 40 days that represent 40 years. Any more thoughts on those uh, numbers as we wrap up that part of the conversation? 
Sure. Just a couple of quick wrap ups there. Uh, the one thing to point out is the the difference, right? They're not the same. The punishment for Israel, the punishment for Judah here is different with the punishment for Judah being significantly less in a sense. And we see that again, the, the prophecies in the Old Testament, the knowledge that the Israelites, the northern kingdom going off to Assyria won't come back, but the southern kingdom of Judah will repent while they're in exile, they will return. So we see a little bit of that, I think, in the, the mere difference between the numbers. The other thing to note is that number 40, and unlike 390, you mentioned 390 just doesn't fit numerology in scripture, but 40 does. You see 40 quite frequently in many ways as this time of trial, uh, a time of testing. So we've got that there at least to consider. Now, what about this matter of him lying on his side for 390 days and 40 days? I mean, when you add those together, that's well more than a year. Are are we to think that Ezekiel literally laid on his left side for 390 days without getting up and then 40 days on his right side without getting up? What do you think? So, yeah, your options are two, I, I guess. I, you could probably come up with a third, I suppose. But your your <laughs> logical option, right, that sounds good to our, our human reasoning is Ezekiel doesn't stay lying down all that time. He He would get up. Um, he would do that for part of the day, but he's got to get up. He's got to go to the market. He's got to buy the supplies. He's got to get up to use the restroom. He's got to do these other things. Um, plus the sheer the sheer problem of 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 lying down for that long and, and the harm that that would do to his body. The the other possibility here is that this is more of a miraculous event in its very nature, and that the Lord is going to to be with him during this time and provide for him and care for him. Um, personally, I lean towards that miraculous nature to this. And I do so because of some of the language that we see as we read through the text. So yesterday is chapter three, verse 25. God said, cords will be placed upon you. You shall be bound with them so that you cannot go out among the people. So there's a binding there. He's not able to move. Um, chapter four, verse six today, we saw when you've completed these, so the 390 days, you're going to lie down a second time. Um, so the distinction there is, is not that he's been lying down over and over again, but once and now twice. Uh, and then chapter four, verse eight as well, that I will place cords upon you. So you cannot turn from one side to the other till you have completed the days of your siege. So just myself, and I know there are others that probably take that approach, but I would say this is something where Ezekiel doesn't get to get up. He is upheld instead by God's strength rather than his own uh, for that, that really long period of time. Well, certainly, and and we should we should not deny that God can work such a miracle to enable His prophet to lay there that long for three hundred ninety days straight, and then another forty days on the other side without taking his life, that, that he could live through that. I would imagine that the suffering, you know, I mean, that was part of what we we're talking about, that suffering would be great in doing so, but that the Lord could miraculously allow him to do so. We certainly would not deny that to the Lord. He is the Lord and he can do that. At the same time, I think there are faithful Christians who who would say, and, and I've, I've heard the, the suggestion that this would be something that he did during the day while others would come and watch him do this, because that's the nature of an action prophecy. It's to be seen. And so he'd do that during the day while allowing for the freedom of movement during the night to take care of some of those other bodily needs that we were talking about. 
as long as such a proposition is made without denying the Lord's ability to do the miraculous, then I can see that being a, a faithful reading of the text that doesn't contradict the text. It's simply just not revealed to us in the text. And and so I think, you know, again, that that level of humility, and I'm, I'm drawing a lot of that again from, from Dr. Hummel and his commentary, uh, is, is a helpful thing. But certainly, could it have been a miraculous thing? Of course. Of course, the Lord could have done that. And we see him do miraculous things throughout the scriptures particularly keeping people alive in situations of hunger is, is certainly a, something that the Lord is capable of doing. One one more thing I think to, to pick up from this section, Pastor Andrews, before we move on, is this matter in verse, oh, where did it go? Verse seven, there it is, with your arm bared. The fact that Ezekiel's arm is to be bared here as he's a part of this diorama of the city of Jerusalem and its siege, that seems pretty significant. Yeah, the, the arm bared isn't just isn't just a reference, you know, that word bare, like without clothing. Um, but an arm that is bared, as you think of a situation like siege warfare, it's battle language. I mean, your arm is bared for battle is a sign for war. Um, so for your, your arm to be stretched out because it's bare, it's not in your tunic or your robe or whatever your, your garment is, it's stretched out instead. And you stretch it out with your weapon in hand. You're ready to strike. Um, or if we're going to that Hollywood picture again, and I think it fits here, the commander of the army would be, you know, stretching out his sword as he yells and urges his troops to charge and rush into the battle. God is leading his charge against Jerusalem. Really, in the at the end of this picture, it's God that brings Jerusalem under siege and judgment. It, Nebuchadnezzar is just the tool uh, by which God chooses to do that. Um, so he has... And he does probably today, even in our age, continue to use one wicked nation to judge another and to bring his 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 judgment upon them. Yeah, that, that's a really important point, that the siege of Jerusalem is something that the Lord is doing, which certainly is a part of this action prophecy. That's the reason that the Lord gives this to Ezekiel, is not simply to, to tell people, hey, this is going to happen, but also... This is something that the Lord is going to bring upon Jerusalem. I, I I misspoke earlier. One more thing to pick up out of out of this section is the the matter of the cords. Uh, tell us a little bit about the cords and and how they might factor into this prophecy. Well, again, if you're going with that miraculous side of it, um, the cords would be God supernaturally binding His servant Ezekiel, so he's stuck there. You know, the temptation would be to not remain in that position, just like Jonah didn't want to do what God gave him to do. But instead, God is binding Ezekiel to this. Ezekiel's going to do this. Um, you could take that God binding kind of language a step further um, to the idea that God it has bound this judgment upon his people. There's no way out of it. This is going to happen just as God has declared that it would. One of the things you mentioned about siege warfare earlier, Pastor Andrews, is the matter of hunger. And that is where the action prophecy takes Ezekiel next. So we pick up the text again in verse 9 of chapter 4. And you take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and emmer, and put them into a single vessel and make your bread from them. During the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days, you shall eat it. And your food that you eat shall be by weight 20 shekels a day. From day to day you shall eat it. And water you shall drink by measure, the sixth part of a hin. From day to day you shall drink. And you shall eat it as a barley cake, baking it in their sight on human dung. And the Lord said, Thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I will drive them. 
Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I have never defiled myself. From my youth up till now, I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has tainted meat come into my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I assign to you cow's dung instead of human dung, on which you may prepare your bread. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and they shall drink water by measure and in dismay. I will do this, that they may lack bread and water, and look at one another in dismay, and rot away because of their punishment. That's the rest of our text for today. That was Ezekiel 4, verses 9 to 17. So, Pastor Andrews, the Lord now speaks to the matter of what Ezekiel is going to eat while he's a part of this diorama of the city of Jerusalem. And he gives him a recipe to follow of how he is to make his bread. What's the significance of the bread that he's given to make? So you've got several things going on here. Um, the first is that bread is simply their their common food. I know we've got a, a movement in our era today where people don't want to eat bread. Um, some can't. But bread was their staple to their diet. And they, they all ate it and they ate it every day. So that's an important part of, of Israel's food supply or Judah's food supply. And this then gets you into that, again, that idea of the siege, the, the judgment of God, is that they are going to be without food, without their access to that food and to new grain to continue to make bread. So what we see here with Ezekiel is he's already enduring uh, this rationed, portions idea that happens in a siege that you have to ration what little food you have. And we see in verse nine, the six different things he gets to make his bread from. And as you look at the list, it's not all grain, right? We don't normally think of making bread from beans and lentils, but essentially make do with whatever you've got. You make your food from whatever you can um, during this time. So the, the, the key here, the, the recipe that's given isn't necessarily to say this is what we should make bread from, but it's actually, this is a matter of suffering, that bread would be made from this thing or these ingredients. That's to say, this is how bad it's going to be. Yeah. What about the, the matter of, and so a part of that too, then you get to the, to the matter of the water. And I think in, in both of the cases, it sounds like, what's going on here is not just, okay, strange ingredients for bread, but also rationing of these things as well, bread and water, both. Right. I mean, Ezekiel himself is not under the strain of this. At least he wouldn't be if it weren't for this action prophecy, because he is in his house. He's nicely planted in exile in Babylon, where God has promised to care for him. But he does, as we talked about, suffering with Israel and Judah. He's doing that here as part of this. The the food amount in verse 10, the drink amount in verse 11, those are rations. So a shekel is two-fifths of an ounce. 20 shekels then is eight ounces. That's not a lot of food. That's all the food that Ezekiel is allowed to eat in a day for 390 days straight. And the water, similar to that, um, you think of how much water you're supposed to drink in a day. I think most of our our health classes and things as kids taught us that we should be drinking eight eight ounce glasses. That's sixty four ounces a day. I have heard the suggestion that you take your weight in pounds, cut it in half, and you need to drink that many ounces. So if you're two hundred pounds, you need to drink a hundred ounces of water every day. What he's getting is a sixth of a hen, 
A hen is about a gallon, so one-sixth of a gallon is 22 ounces, well short of that daily recommendation of what's needed for our body to be healthy and, and function well. So he's short on both of these measures on food and drink for his time of 390 days, which is interesting because it's not just 390 days he lays on his side. What happened to the 40? Um, it's just gone. So does that final piece of bread on day 390, is it supernaturally um, a, a food that feeds him just like uh, the prophet Elijah was supernaturally fed uh, and survived on one one meal for 40 days and 40 nights? Um, I don't know. Hmm. Well, yeah. And again, that's where the, I think there's a couple of ways you could take that. The fact that the 40 days isn't mentioned could could mean that he didn't eat for 40 days, which if, if that is the case, then that would be a, a foreshadowing, I think, of our Lord's own temptation and fasting in the wilderness that, that's recorded in the Gospels. It's also possible that by saying you know, and again, it's hard to know for sure, but it's possible that it's implied that he would also eat this for the 40 days and it just isn't said. Both of those I think are possible, but it's it's an interesting question to consider. Either way, the Lord is able to do such things. Now, the other instruction that's given is not only the recipe, not only have it a recipe for bread and the amount that's to be eaten and the amount of water that's to be drink or the amount of water that is to be drunk. But there is also the way of cooking. And this is where the text of Ezekiel, again, is this is just one of those strange books and one of the strange things, but this is what the Lord gives him to do. Tell us about the cooking method. Yeah, uh, potty humor enters into this text, right? Um, you've got Although it's boys. not funny, I think, right? Well, you're laughing already. We, so, we giggle, but it's not funny. Not for him. No, as, as he is instructed to cook his food essentially over his own poop, um, he, I guess he freaks out a little bit here. His, his response down in verse 14, oh, Lord Yahweh. You know, the other times um, I've been studying this for my own podcast and I'm, I'm a few chapters ahead here, but the other times I've seen him use that same phrase, uh, have been in reference to God's judgment itself, where the Lord has been um, actively striking down in judgment the people of Jerusalem that deserved it because of their idol worship and things. And, and his response was saying that and saying, will you really wipe out the remnant? Will you really wipe out everyone? And so just using his grammar, his language, this command to bake his food over his own poop is on the same kind of a scale, which is interesting to consider. Um, he doesn't want to do it, right? Not at all. And so he he does push back a little bit and the Lord consents, the Lord grants him that. And it's still poop, but it's not his. It's uh, an animal. It's a cow. So you think of cow patties, that kind of thing, um, which are used for fuel in, in some places. The, the pushback that the the prophet does give to the Lord centers around the matter of his own defilement or uncleanness. How does, how does the matter of uncleanness defilement factor in not only to what Ezekiel says, but to the situation of the siege and what the people are going to be eating during that siege of Jerusalem? That's a good two part question. So for, from his own point, it's hard to say because it seems to be more just his own self being grossed out by this matter because he, 
he doesn't have, at least I can't find a direct command in the Old Testament that says, don't do this thing. Like as you look at the unclean laws, the the cleanliness laws, I guess we would call them, uh, you're primarily in the book of Leviticus. There are 107 times that word unclean shows up in that book. So it's a prominent feature. And, and this isn't one of them, right? The other two things he mentions. So he says he hasn't eaten uh, what has died or been torn by wild beasts. He hasn't eaten um, tainted meat. Those things are actually in Leviticus chapter 7, both of them. Uh, so verses 18 and 24, you can find those. Um, there are stricter requirements of cleanliness for the priests themselves, rem- remembering he was a priest in his time there. And one of those is the idea of not being allowed to use a razor to, to shave, to cut his hair or his beard. God is actually going to command him to do that in chapter 5, and Ezekiel doesn't push back against that one, at least not that's recorded for us, like he does this one. So this does bother him quite a bit to the point where he's actually willing to object. He's not objecting to lying on his side, but the yeah, the human excrement, the the dung, as the ESV translates it, that one bothers him. Now, your second part of that question, the idea of, of the uncleanness connected to what they will eat, that does come up here too. I mean, and it actually goes back to what we were just talking about, the, the 40 days being left out. Um, if that is be, simply because he doesn't get to eat for those 40 days, that connects to siege warfare. As you get near the end of the siege, you're out of food and you are you're simply running on fumes and you're trying to stave off death for as long as you can um, until eventually you can't anymore. Um, So that might be a connection there. But you mentioned a recent study in the book of Lamentations and you start seeing some of the things that they do. And that includes cannibalism as they start to eat human flesh. They start to eat even their own children um, as they try to survive without food in that siege. Right. I mean, this this text, particularly when you do put it side by side with Lamentations, is a reminder of just how brutally horrific the siege of Jerusalem really was. And, and something that I think in our own day is hard for us to comprehend this level of suffering where you know Ezekiel is given this concession of how he is allowed to cook his food. But if you're there in the city of Jerusalem and those are the only options you've got left— and that's that's what they did, and it, it's it, the lamentate the book of Lamentations gives us that that horrific nature. This text starts to give us that horrific nature. It was it was really bad. I mean, that, and that's just not nearly strong enough of language to describe it. These give us a, a picture of just how harsh the Lord's judgment is. And, and the last two verses of our text today, in verses sixteen and and seventeen are a reminder, do a little bit more of this interpretation of, of why the Lord is giving Ezekiel, particularly the matter of his diet and his rations. Take us into those last two verses of the text, verses 16 and 17. So yeah, the ration idea here again, God says, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. That's the siege idea. Um, again, we would think that it's the the army that has encircled Jerusalem, that they're the ones breaking the supply. But this is again, God reminding us this isn't just Babylon doing whatever Babylon wants to do. It's not sinners being sinners, although they are. I, this is the Lord's judgment. This is his proclamation, his declaration upon these people because they have for so long 
abandoned him and refused to repent of their sins. And so the Lord is bringing this judgment upon them directly himself. The people who live in Jerusalem, their food supply is cut off. They're going to have to ration everything. I mentioned it earlier, the, the siege that we learned from uh, 2 Kings 25, it lasts from 589 to 587. So imagine um, if your community where you live today were cut off from the outside world, no more food could come in, you, you really don't have the space to grow more food, how long can you make what you have on hand last uh, before things start getting bad? And you, so you start rationing. As soon as you see that enemy army show up, you start to ration and anxiety settles in. Dismay starts to overcome you as you start to wonder, how will we survive? How will we get through this? Um, well, again, this does connect us to the New Testament ourselves, right? Uh, the Lord speaks this way. Jesus speaks this way in Matthew chapter 6, tells us not to worry, not to be anxious about what we will eat. Why? Because he himself will be the one who calls, uh, who provides for us. Uh, which is a wonderful thing that he is going to care for us always and supply our, our needs, but not here because that judgment declaration of God has already come. Um, they are going to look at one another, verse 17, in their dismay, and they're going to cry out, but they're not crying out to the Lord in that dismay. They are simply calling out probably to their pagan gods um, since they have so thoroughly abandoned Yahweh at this point. And they they just rot because they're, those pagan gods cannot save them, will not save them. This final judgment of the Lord is here. Pastor Andrews, we have just about four minutes left on the morning. And we've talked about a lot of things that are rather uncertain. We may not always be able to pinpoint precisely what is being pictured in our minds. And so as, what, what I'd like to do is, is try to put a, a what we do know, the big picture of this action prophecy of Ezekiel. And here's kind of where, I, where I'm at with this. What, what is Ezekiel doing here? He's proclaiming to the people through this action prophecy that Jerusalem will fall and it will be downright awful for the people there. So there's, there's no doubt about it that this is what's going to happen. Jerusalem's going to fall. It's going to be terrible. And then, as you've emphasized for us several times, rightly so and very well, why is it happening? The Lord is the one doing it. And he's doing it because of the people's iniquity. And this is, I mean, to, if we can go with that double meaning there, he's doing it as a punishment for the people's iniquity. So that's the, I mean, I think if, if we have to summarize everything, that's how I would do it. And then I, I think the question that should arise out of that, and maybe this is where we can begin to make a connection to, to our hope here is, well, where is the hope? If that's the case, that Jerusalem is going to fall and it's going to be terrible, and it's because of our iniquity that the Lord's bringing upon us, where's the hope? So uh, that's kind of how, how I would put this text together. With about three minutes, Pastor Andrews, any response to that? And, and help us to you know, summarize, and, and even in a text as brutal as this, how are we being pointed to Christ here? God's judgment does point us to the Lord. It points us to, as we do cry out, it points us to our Savior. And so we'll come back to that idea, but I think the way we get there from this is the part of your summary that, I like your summary. Uh, the one part I would add to what you summarized is that there is a season of exile coming, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got the destruction of Jerusalem, then you have the, the just how brutal that is going to be, but then there's more after that. 
So the Israelites never return. But even the the Judaites, as they're taken off to Babylon, they're going to remain there for a stretch of a couple of generations. It's going to be 70 years um, between the destruction of the temple and the rededication of the temple. And so that's not not great time, right? They are they're exiles. They're away from the land that God has given to them. They're away from worshiping in him in the temple. And so there, there's a, a search for hope. There's a search for restoration, which comes through the promises, um, which are seen largely from Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah has a beautiful one. I think it's chapter 31, verses 31 through 34 of hope. Lamentations had that. Lamentations chapter three, right? That middle unit of the book, which is pretty much the only thing most Christians I think are familiar with um, from that book. There is hope. And you've got to wait a long time in Ezekiel to get there. It's near the end of the book before he starts changing in that direction and talking about the restoration promise, but it's there. And we see this in Jesus' ministry. Um, As we talk about the destruction of Jerusalem, the Jews would have seen that as this terrible thing, end of the world kind of stuff. God would never let his temple be destroyed. Um, We see them in their own pride say that sometimes in the Old Testament. The disciples had the same response in Matthew 24 when Jesus starts talking about the destruction of the temple. They assume he's talking about the end of the world. And he has to remind them that he's not. He has to teach them that he's not. Um, instead, he's talking about, well, his his own death sometimes with the temple language and his resurrection. But you also have the destruction from Rome that would come in 70 AD as that temple's destroyed again. So there there is hope for the people. There is a restoration coming. Um, and Ezekiel gets to share that with them. And it does point us to Jesus. It's just, yeah, it's, as you said, a difficult chapter uh, with lots of things that we may not be able to necessarily pinpoint precisely. But there is hope. Punishment will come, but Jesus will also. That's right. That's right. Stick with us. Stick with Ezekiel. He is going to proclaim hope to us, Christ crucified for us. Pastor Steve Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri, helping us today with Ezekiel 4, verses 1 to 17. Pastor Andrews, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. Blessings to you, brother. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Ezekiel, get in touch with us. Send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or send a message through the app. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.